This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 332, we're going to take a ride on the lightning rail and uncover relics of the Draconic Prophecy as we talk about Eberron rising from the Last War. All right, and joining us for this episode is the Tome Show's own monstrous ecologist, Jeremiah McCoy. Welcome back to the show, sir. Greetings and salutations. I don't know that I've ever uh, said hello to you or introduced you in any way and not gotten that exact response. <laughs> Go with what works. <laughs> he has a brand. He does. <laughs> and also joining us from the Edition War show, uh, available here at the Tome Show, as well as writing at tribality.com and on his own website, it's Brandis Stoddard. Hey, all travelers. It's good to have everybody here today. Today we're going to be talking about the latest book from Wizards of the Coast, Eberron. Um, it's not an adventure. Uh, we tend to get about one of these a year, and Eberron Rising from the Last War is returned to a beloved setting. My husband's a huge fan. Uh, that was popular in the last two editions of D&D. Eberron was originally created by Keith Baker as part of a contest in the third edition days, and it's been bringing people joy ever since. It's a crazy pulp fantasy setting, and it's the first time a setting book has been published to relaunch an old setting since 5th edition came out. And I think it's interesting we call it pulp if it's okay. I know we don't want to dive in yet, but I want to talk about that later. So uh, before we dive into exactly what Eberron is and what, what this, this book is all about and all that, uh, I want to thank all of our listeners who support the show. Doing so is, is super easy. You can either go shopping at DMs Guild or Amazon and get the exact same experience just like you normally would. But if you get there through the links at thetomeshow.com, we get a small percentage of whatever you spend. Uh, and, and that goes, gets spread out to uh, our, our, our wonderful contributors and, and for review products and what have you. Uh, or you can support us directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Uh, just like Leonard Pelche is back as a patron, as uh, Jill Sanders and Doug Palmer have uh, been our, was our stalwart uh, patrons. Um, and also a new patron, Jared Rasher, has joined us. So thank you, Jared, and welcome to the crew. So... First up, in the interest of full disclosure, I am working from a review copy as well, uh, both physical and uh, on D&D Beyond. So uh, other people, I know Tracy has a review copy because I sent her one of the two that I got. I am also working from a review copy. Uh, I now receive review copies for my Tribality column. Excellent. And Jeremiah, you bought yours. <laughs> yes. So someday I'll be cool enough to get review copies. He hasn't been bribed to review this book like we have. No quid pro quo. <laughs> That's right. No quid pro quo. Oh. Uh, let's start with the the super simple, not complicated at all question of uh, what is Eberron? Ooh. Uh, so <laughs> Eberron is sort of magic punk but not in a Ravnica way um, pulp noir uh, high action high mystery adventure okay 
Are we all That's on board? Is that, is that a comprehensive uh, description? I I would say that Eberron is, at its core, still just a D&D setting, in that everything yes. that you expect from D&D is there. It's just with an added layer of good complication, good complexity. Yep. Uh, this is... There are ways that you can add complexity and complication to things, and it just makes it harder to deal with. And then there are ways you can add a layer of complexity that makes it more interesting. And that's Eberron. Eberron adds a layer of complexity to what you expect from D&D to make it more interesting. The original goal and conceit of Eberron is to uh, really lean into all of these things that are true about D&D while still putting a, a fresh spin on them. But anything that can show up in D&D can show up in Eberron. Uh, that's, that's one of the fundamental promises. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if I think back, because originally Eberron was a, a contest entry that Keith Baker made to Wizards of the Coast who did a setting contest back in the third edition. And I think one of the conceits right. of that contest was it has to be a uniquely D&D setting. And so anything that has existed in D&D is kind of in Eberron, but then he also added in other things like Kalashtar and Changelings and um, um, uh, what are the shifters and Warforged and artificers and, um, and, and this sort of um, – how did he describe it when we talked about Wayfinder's Guide? It was uh, uh, the, the pool of magic is wide but shallow. I think is how he described yeah, it. Right. Like, there's a lot of magic, mm-hmm. but it's not like super high, powerful magic. I, I think that um, one other way of sort of describing it is it is uniquely D and D, but it strips some of the external things that went into D and D, like the Tolkienian conceits mm-hmm. that sort of mm-hmm. melded into D and D aren't here like halflings riding dinosaurs the elves are not uh uh, some sort of ethereal fairy-like creatures they are deeply different in so many ways from the tolkienian elves that we know right it's very much sort of uh what if DD, but with a, a an appendix n that has no overlap yeah, there's the orcs are not uh, uh, orcs and goblins are not sort of dirt, dirty, corrupted versions of something else. They are their own special people right. with when, their own histories. And when when Brandis says it has its own appendix in with no overlap for people who may be listening that don't have that frame of reference. Appendix in was the appendix in the original. Was it DMG? Yep. Yeah, yep. that had a list of sort of the novels that inspired the concepts that that are sort of at the core of, of the D&D default generic setting, if you will. Uh, and so you're implying what if we didn't use any of that inspiration, we just used the D&D books as inspiration and created a world um, sort uh, of whole Well, block. no, it, it's more kind of what if uh, – our appendix N is China Mieville and mm. 
uh, a, a not exactly extant fantasy set in uh, 1930 and all of the pulps, but not Conan, right? Right. Uh, so, so, more, and, more Doc Savage than Conan. Tracy? Yeah, and I was going to say it's like specifically trying to pull away from that before the gun or before the train type things, that, that, that huge difference that happened with the Industrial Revolution. So Conan fits more still in pre-Industrial Revolution for most of the stories that are being told. Um, where here we have trains, like as we said in the in the beginning of the episode, and, and other sorts of things, uh, street lamps everywhere, streets right. as a, a major thing that's going to yeah. happen almost everywhere. I mean, Printing yeah. presses and newspapers. Eberron, Eberron yeah. is a, a post-Industrial Revolution D&D fantasy setting where it was a magical Industrial Revolution. It's not an actual Industrial Revolution. It's not, you know, burning coal and running factories and all of that. It's all magically based. And so there's trains, but they're lightning rails. And there's airships, uh, but they're powered by elementals, uh, you know. And so there's, there, it's all magically based sort of Industrial Revolution. Right. I agree with all that. Okay. Um, so I think one of the important ways to understand and talk about sort of what Eberron is, is to talk about the kind of stories that are kind of, I don't know, iconic Eberron. Like what kind of stories do you tell in this in this setting? Well, if it works for Indiana Jones, it's going to work real well in Eberron for starters. Mm. Because... Uh, the, the Indiana Jones stories are very, very much built on the same um, the same like post-war or interwar or during the war pulps that um, that Eberron is right. Okay. Uh, like it's it would be very easy to run uh, something like Raiders because it's a Kenneth super weapon is what the arc is. Cool, we're good. Or it's, I don't know, some crazy thing from pick a religion of your choice. Could certainly be the Silver Flame. Um, there, there's a ton of different ways to explain the the origin of something like the Ark in an Eberron story. Um, right. And it would all be fine. Well, and because magic and the planes and all that still exists, so the Ark is actually easier to explain in Eberron than it is in Indiana Jones. Right, I, I think that also the the aforementioned complexity um, lends itself to intrigue mm-hmm. in ways that maybe you don't see it as often in, say, a Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or something like that. Um, the levels of society are different. Um, there is the dragon-marked houses, which are very much like sort of one family corporations and they have their own sort of power network in and of themselves. But you also have traditional kingdoms. You have lots of factions uh, within kingdoms and it's all sort of described as a, 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 I hate the, I hate the word, but it'll, I'll use it. The melange of sort of different things mixed together that allow you to do stories where it's spies trying to prevent a war by uh, assassinating a member of the Dragonmark house 
and making it look like it's uh, you know this uh, Droam faction who actually isn't supporting the king but wants to return to the Dakani, and you you know that level of conversation is right. there, and you know yes you can do the high adventure swinging from uh, you know from your whip a- a- across the ancient temple that's there, there's the fight on the the top of the train that's there, but there's also a lot of intrigue and mystery and and the more noir elements are present here in ways that maybe aren't as supported in a forgotten realms game or or mistara or something like that yeah it was kind of well and importantly there there are trains so no (laughs) ticket right uh uh you, we've sort of alluded to a, an important concept of Eberron, but without actually calling it out. And that's the idea of the last war, uh, which is kind of the shadow that looms over the entire thing that I think as a setting enables that kind of intrigue that, that you're talking about, Jeremiah, right? It's There was a large – there was a, a massive continent-wide war. Um, the – the five kingdoms sort of broke apart and fought over who was going to take over for the one kingdom that used to rule. Uh, and they, this went on for, for years and years and years. And the war has just ended like a few years ago. Um, and now how, how are people getting on again? Right. What's, what, you know, that's where that intrigue comes from. It's like the, there's been a peace, but it's not really much of a peace. Right. Uh, there's still that, that tension between those, five kingdoms and a lot of that stuff going on. Um, I mean, it's a piece that comes from fear. Right. It's, um, well, Cause it ended with the destruction of sire. Um, right. Uh, suddenly one of the kingdoms just sort of exploded. It was, uh, in, I, I, in my head, I struggle because I want Eberron to be an analogy to real world history. But in many ways, right? In many ways, the last war was World War One, and in other ways, it was definitely World War Two, right? And and uh, the destruction of Sire, which is how I will always pronounce it, regardless of what Wizards of the Coast has started saying, uh, uh, was sort of the dropping of the atomic bomb, right? Now we're going to have peace because somebody's got a nuke out there, and we don't know who it is, and we don't know where they're aiming it next. Yeah, I, I think the 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 morning. Uh, the 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 Mornlands and the uh, the uh, w- which are what's left of, of this here aren't an exact analogy to atomic weapons. Well, no, of course, but not. it's cl- but it's close yeah. enough. Yeah, um, right, and and getting the analogy closer would not um, be in service to good taste, probably. Sure, good taste uh-huh. or good storytelling, honestly. Sure. So, so, so I think we've talked around sort of the issue of what is Eberron pretty well. Does anybody have anything they feel the need to add? I think because I want to go back to that comment about we originally described it uh, as that pulp setting. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then trying to talk about also bringing in a lot of this intrigue, which I, I know can be in pulp, but it just felt like to me, reading through it, there's this constant tension between what it was really trying to present as, because we also have all of these sidebars that make it look like 
sensational newspaper uh, articles mm. or headings, um, but then also trying to say that it's a noir setting. And then a lot of the artwork was, I think, recycled. Some of it was, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. Particularly the bigger pieces from the Wayne Reynolds stuff, which just mm-hmm. didn't fit on it. So that's why it was really hard for me to really get a full understanding of what the book was trying to suggest running because it seemed like it just didn't mash well together and that's fair i don't know how much tracy how much experience do you have with the previous incarnations of ebron i know your husband's a big fan i i know a little bit and the reason i brought up the um, uh halflings and and dinosaurs, dinosaurs is because that's his favorite part of it oh, right on. <laughs> which is totally different from everything else oh it's completely except different for when you well so there's there's certainly these these pulp era ish bits of Eberron, right? The 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 heists and the airships and the trains and and you know being after the war sort of thing uh, all sort of fits in. And and then even honestly even the the halflings on dinosaurs because it kind of creates this this other space in the world that you can, you know, sort of like uh when a, a, an old pulp hero would go off to the to the uh, uncivilized jungles, you know, if you will. Um so, so it creates that kind of opportunity, you know? Right. Um, and it has a lot of that thinking that was, um, you know, sort of around that time period, like when we got that book about the canals on Mars and that led to, right. you know, a lot of the sci-fi and pulp type stuff that was happening then. So I kind of get it, but it was just a mm-hmm. little, didn't feel as polished as it could be, particularly compared to some of our more recent books like Acquisition Zinc. Oh sure, and Greg in the chat here points out also that they that Eberron also very heavily involves these secret extra national societies in the na- in in the form of the dragon marked houses, which we didn't even talk about. Uh, which when I first was introduced to Eberron back in third edition was the thing I wanted to play around with the most was this idea of dragon marks, but that's just because it seemed cool to me at the time, right? Right, you uh, definitely have like House Kenneth as a whole military industrial complex. Right. In itself, right? They're they're Dow Chemical and uh, Chance Fought and uh, a ton of other like big big arms manufacturing companies right. Right. from um, from right after uh, World War Two. Yep, and uh, and, and, all, and, and the and other houses are doing other things, right? So you've got all these different houses yeah. running different things. None of them are associated with any countries, and they're all sort of all over the place running their own thing, um, which kind of fits into the secret societies concept of of uh, the pulp era, right? Right, and there's also uh, so so in addition to all of the support for uh, you know post World War One and post World War Two, I think that. This book is especially going out of its way to sell, hey, you can run Cold War content here mm-hmm. in in various ways, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I've got, I think, basically all of the third ed product line of Eberron, but that is not to say that I've read all of the third ed product line right. because, because it's a lot and um, I'm not going to do that level of research if I'm not either writing or running something. I think so, Jeremiah wants to talk about that. I I have read yeah, all of sure. them. You've yeah, read them yeah. all. <laughs> and that, I, now I, that said, I think it's, it's worth I think it's worth pointing out that that's why I asked Tracy what her experience was with Eberron um, from the past because 
we're coming at this with a lot more baggage, right? We have the history of the setting that we know what it, how it was presented in the past, and that is so intrinsic to our understanding of Eberron that it's just sort of there. And I was wondering if Tracy was giving us a, a bit of a fresher look because maybe you're not coming in with that baggage. Does that seem accurate, Tracy? Uh, I think so. I mean, we read some of the novels for book club and stuff through the right. years, but it's I, I didn't go back and read all of the third edition version. Right. Um, and I did whatever was in fourth edition, but it wasn't a ton. And it felt very similar. But again, like it just it felt like right. there was a lot trying to be condensed into one book. I think yeah. is what you're trying to say. And I think, that, yeah, I think that's true. Like, I, think that, I definitely agree that the later portions of this book are trying to like hit the highlights of the whole third ed product line. Um, Forge of War right. in particular. This is a book that really needs to be four or five books. Now the good news is you can still go buy all of those old books and their setting content right. is still 100% relevant. And the adventure, the adventures aren't hard to convert. Yeah. And it should be pointed out because this is a distinct difference between forgotten realms. The timeline has not advanced. Yeah. So, exactly. Every single pit of actual lore content in those books it remains ac- uh, accurate. You want to know more about Sarlona? They actually published a book about it. All of the uh, the the history and lore about Sarlona is still valid. And and nothing is considered canon. Novels, adventures, whatever. Nothing is canon right. unless it's in your game. Yeah. And I think that's all true. But I think one of the issues then with this particular thing is for someone who doesn't have that time to try to go back through the older versions, trying to figure out how to actually run an adventure, because this isn't an adventure book. It doesn't have a pre-planned way to go through at least part of the world. One of the things I really liked about this book is that it does have this whole section of running adventures and it sort of has you know little snapshots of hey you want to run an adventure f- featuring this location or this group or whatever here's a bunch of information like a page and a half or whatever of information and tables and things that you can use to generate it was actually in my mind i assume it was modeled after what was probably my favorite section from the ravnica book where they did the same sort of thing like here's how to build an adventure in ravnica this seemed like that but more and, and i i liked that about it Right, but the, are you, do you like it more because you're already familiar with everything, and thus you only need the half one and a half pages to to think through it? Or um, I don't know. You know what though? I don't. I don't know. And and if I'm being honest, like, so we looked at the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron when it came out. That was the PDF. That, if I'm being real clear, is largely here in this book. Um, they they largely took a big big chunks of the Wayfinder's Guide re-edit it, revised it, whatever, tweaked some things, added a bit, and, and put it into this book. Um, right, it's definitely a Venn diagram. Sure. Absolutely. And, and and we reviewed that book, and I was finding things in the setting of Eberron in that book that I had never really delved into before that gave me all kinds of ideas. So I know there are, there are places and things and ideas in Eberron that I could pull out of that section – and and still look at with some pretty fresh eyes and, and come up with some cool ideas, I think. So so for me, as an Eberron fan who has never run an Eberron campaign, um, I uh, this is a, an intensely valuable book to me uh, because 
I, I have enough foundation to understand what a lot of things mean without deeper explanation, which is, is maybe a big difference between how I'm receiving the book and how Tracy's receiving it. But um, the book wants to um, hold your hand enough that once you do have the foundation, here's a bunch of different ways to use it. And so this book is the first time I felt like I was ready to run Eberron. Um, okay. My, my criticism of the third ed books is that they're, they're presenting something that is so, so big and so different and so different in some really specific ways from the rest of what goes on in third ed that I, I was very put off of running it. I wanted to play it. Mm. I wanted to see it through someone else's eyes, but I couldn't work myself up to being ready to play it. And that always sort of sort of bugged me because I think I'm I think of myself as being good at this. I, I invest right. pride in being good at this kind of thing, but yeah, this is the book that had what I needed to hear. Uh, and the third ed books were just happened to not be the way I needed to hear it. And okay. so like uh, nothing I'm, I'm saying is trying to take anything away from uh, Tracy's perspective, just mine is contrasting. And so some other readers will have that same sense right. of this works or this doesn't work. So, yeah, I, I, I have run Eberron in the past. Uh, I ran it when it was in, when it was new. Um, I've written content for it. Um, I have a deep and abiding lore, and that is going to uh, uh, a deep abiding love of the lore of the game, and that's going to shape my way of reading this. Um, that said, if I had a a specific, I wish they had done this instead of that. Here is. I kind of wish they had separated it into a player's book and a GM's book. I know it's not the way of doing things right now. Um, and I get that was the fourth edition way of doing things, Jeremiah. I know, I know. <laughs> but here's here's my reason. It feels like uh, there was some compression of some things right. that I could. I was filling in the blanks in my head, but I could read it and go they probably should have explained this better uh, for people who are coming from D and D like forgotten realms or Greyhawk or what have you, and are not familiar. Like just as a, a an example of the monster section, they probably should have explained how fiends work and how they're differently different from the fiends that you see in D and D. Like in the in Forgotten Realms, like the the separation between devils and demons, not as not as clear cut in right. this world. It's a, it's a, it's ironic that the book that came out right before this is Descent into Avernus, which right. deals with very classical D and D demons and devils, and then you go into Eberron and you've established for this community here's how demons and devils look, and the next thing that they the, the next thing they pick up. Is where is where demons and devils work completely differently, and they 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 don't do a ton of work to explain that and to lay that foundation. Right, and and it felt like there's a whole section of DM stuff that you probably need to help sort of 
beef up your understanding of how this is supposed to work differently than D like the D and D you're more familiar with to some of the classic adventures. And it, it, it felt like it was lacking a little bit in, in some of those. And it's all across the board in there, just little things right. that, that are just not there that I could read in my head. Like I know what's supposed to be there. Right. And, and that goes back to my point a little bit only in terms of, I'm not, I wasn't saying that it was impossible with the book or anything like that if you didn't already have the lore to try to pick stuff up. Just looking at me now from five years ago or even me from five years from now, I'm just incredibly time crunched. So the likelihood of being able to pick up this book and, and translate it into an adventure right now is very limited. Where if I had a bare bones adventure, it might have been a little easier. And that's that's just yeah. just something that I hope they end up putting out an adventure eventually. There's a, there's a degree to which when I look at a book like this and I say, you know, if, if the biggest problem with the book is that I want more of it, then that's a good thing for the book, right? It, that must be a pretty good product. But sure. there's also a degree to which you have to ask, is there – is it – do I want so much more that I'm not going to get the usefulness out of it that I want to get? And, I, that, and that's the concern I have thinking about what Tracy's saying, right? Is that uh, by shoving all the player stuff, all the DM stuff, and an adventure and all the adventure stuff into one product, is it possible that they're not doing proper service to any of them? I, I will say that some of the explanations in this book are better than the ones that they put in the third edition books. Um, uh, I would agree. So to me, a lot of the gazetteer portion is – it's where I'll, I think the greatest amount of text was cut uh, yes. compared to other books. But to me, they – I guess I want to say they, they cut fat without cutting bone. Um, and I was really impressed with it. Again, like I, I received this book very positively, and I reviewed it in incandescent terms in Tribality. So, like, uh, I, I am coming from a very specific place, and that, like, someone not coming from that same place is not going to have the same experience with it. Just, sure. just no question. Now. Right. I think I think there's a couple of things going on. I think for those people who are longtime Eberron fans, you're, you can fill in the gaps or pull out your other books to fill in the gaps or whatever. Uh, and I think for other people, like I could very easily see myself picking this book up, just like I saw myself doing the same thing with Ravnica, using the tools that are here in the book and being able to run a game in my version of Eberron. And if it's not consistent with any of the previous lore or products or anybody else's experience running Eberron because they took different chunks out of it and, and, and developed you know, this little snippet of a, of, a, of a location or of an organization or whatever and turned it into you – know, grow it out and, and filled it out with other things – then I guess I, I have to be okay with that. Like your Eberron experience may be different than my Eberron experience because we're taking the little bits and expanding it out into, into slightly different ways. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, as I said, you know, I had a critique. This is not to say I didn't love this book. I, mm -hmm. I adored this book. Um, I think uh, I, you know, yes, there were some things I, want, I, I, I wanted some extra on, uh, but it's all stuff that uh, it's like, I sort of know this stuff and I kind of wish other people so I could be like, isn't this cool? Uh, and like the, 
the differences are are significant, but some of them just get kind of folded over. Like what there is no hell in this setting. Right. Um gods not, not formally. No. <laughs> um well I mean so there's Kyber and there's Zoriad. And Zoriad is more like the Far Realms than Hell. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, and there's there's a bunch of planes where, yeah. and they aren't, you know, where the damned are sent for torture. But I mean, Fernia is pretty hellish. Sure, it's a plane of fire. But one uh, of the one of the big differences like, there is that things on Fernia don't want to come to Eberron generally. They don't actually care what goes on in, uh, on Eberron unless it intersects. Like, uh, in th- creatures in hell want your souls to fuel their war. Uh, sure. The, the demons in, in, in the abyss want to destroy the world uh, because that's their nature. They're chaotic and all this. Kyber is its own thing. I mean, it, you're, one of your best Avernus analogs is going to be uh, Shavaroth, the battleground. Right. And yeah. Sure. I think we're getting a little bit into the weeds, though, of the planes of Eberron and how they're different. The point is, it's For different sure. than the than, than other settings and, and the, than standard D anD D, and it's and it's not deeply explained here. Right. It, unless it, of unless of course you take the I don't care approach and make it your own Eberron, and then sure. you put whatever planes you want, and it works that way. Right. Yeah. It, but like by default, Eberron is intensely hostile to uh, Great Wheel right. cosmology yeah. because. Third Ed was intensely hostile to Great Wheel cosmology. Um, <laughs> so, and so was Fourth. And so here's to, to get into a different set of weeds. <laughs> uh, here's a question I have. I have a few different questions uh, based on my previous experience with Ebron in this one. Well, for, uh, first of all, we already mentioned that the Venn diagram between this and the Wayfinder's Guide to Ebron is has some significant overlap. Sure. Um, I also note that. Um, the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron was written and designed by Keith Baker and Rudy Rutenberg, right? Yeah. Am I remembering that name? Yeah. But Rudy's not listed in here. And if they lifted big chunks of the Wayfinder's Guide to put in here, it seems strange that he didn't get any sort of credit at all. Um, um, but uh, Go ahead. I was looking at the, the credits. Um, he is not one of the lead designers, certainly. Um I didn't see him listed anywhere. Did I miss it? I thought I mean, I, the Wayfinder's Guide gets a, a a inspiration list, but then even then, it's Keith Baker listed as the yeah. for it. I admittedly did not, you know, do an exhaustive look through, so there is that. But yeah, it, uh, it he's he's not on the list of lead designers or writers, so right. Yeah. And 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 I don't know. Maybe his work was such that it. Didn't need to be there. I don't know, yeah. um, but but I do I do want to ask the question: If there's a significant Venn diagram between the two, is there any reason for people to buy both of them? Uh, I I don't have the chart in front of me right now of what uh, Wayfinders has that uh, Eberron doesn't. Um, I will say yes if you're running it. And I'll, uh, the, the specifically 
because the sections that they have of the different uh, locations um, uh, are one page or two page summaries that you yeah, can that's hand true. to anyone. And yeah, the Wayfinder's Guide the- makes it makes great handouts. Yes. Yeah, you're right. So it's it's worth it in that regard, uh, and and I think it's worth it to get the book if you already have Wayfinder's Guide. If you want things like the Artificer, <laughs> you know, it's got the sample adventure and, and the adventure creation um, section that I think is really good. Um, the dragon marks are largely handled similarly, right? Um, I didn't go through them with a fine tooth comb and, and compare them side by side to see how they it, compare. They're um, but they're, they're kind of different, actually. Yeah, are they? Yeah, um, all of the uh, spell effects that you would get from your dragon mark, you now only receive if you have the spellcasting feature or the pact magic feature. Um, oh, and, and they are added to your spell list. But if you don't have any spellcasting, because you're just not a spellcasting class and subclass, uh, you don't get that thing. And I, I have a hard time. Like yeah, that's feeling happy that significantly, about that choice. That significantly changes the entire Dragon Mark House thing. It really does. It, yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a real big shift, and I I have really struggled to accept that one because it means that um, you know most fighters, most rogues, most barbarians, most monks, um, they just don't get very much from a Dragon Mark. Yeah. And, and Root, uh, 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 Jester in the chat um, thinks that Rudy's big contribution was the the race and dragon mark mechanics that then got play tested out and as we're as we're discussing now uh, were changed in this and that's so maybe that's why he wasn't credited. Mm-hmm. I mean the the dragon marks are still sub races. Yeah. So so no. there's that. Yeah. That and, and I like that. I like making the, the sub races because I always. My my younger, uh, more impulsive, less wanting to support the narrative of the setting player that was me wanted to take my. I, I always wanted to be the exception. That's the kind of player I was in you know back in college and whatever. I always wanted to be the exception. I always wanted to be the one person from a different race who got that dragon mark that they weren't supposed to have. Right? Yeah, got to be that uh, guy. You got to be that guy. Now, I, I I always had to be that guy, but this. This way of doing it um, really reinforces – uses the mechanics to reinforce the story and the, and the setting. Um, so I like that it would have thwarted me as that guy back in the day. I, I think that um, – here's me suggesting a house rule. And as a general rule, I don't do this um, for like creating new rules spaces, telling people they should make – new rule spaces in their games if they don't, you know, I'm not saying you have to do this, but it may help you given the writing of this book. Give everybody a free feat. Yep. Well, so that's that's one of the things about this version of Eberron is that Eberron was more, was intended as when created to be more cinematic, right? It right. introduced us to action points and that kind of stuff. And it allowed players to do crazy over the top things. That's not built into this version of Eberron. No. Uh, and, and my, my reasoning for give everybody a free feat, um, is there are so many descriptions in just like the different locations 
where they say these people are common to have uh, spellcasters. So if you take the the magical no. adept, like it it appears in several cultures. You know, many of these people will have magic adept. Many of these people have magic adept. But you don't get to start with feats in this game unless you take uh, uh, the variant human. Um, and that doesn't even include all of the other races and the dragon marks and such. Give everybody a free uh, a free feat. Just, just, you start with a free feat. And you can use that feat to take... Magical adapt if you want to have all the magical stuff that comes with being a dragon mark. And and that I think that's good advice, uh, but it's also telling in a review of the product that we have to give advice on how to hack it to make it have the flavor that you really want, right? Um, there's a lots of good things in here, but it sounds like we're generally not a big fan of the way they change dragon marks, and there's ways sort of around that. Well, Is that so, fair? So, so for a... a, a Official alternative, uh, you can definitely pick up uh, Morgrave Miscellany for another you know, way to handle dragon marks and another way to right. receive dragon marks. Um, Although it, the Morgrave Miscellany was not official enough to make it into D&D Beyond like Wayfinder's Guide was. Sure. <laughs> that's important to me because that's how I make all my characters and all my players do. That's regrettable. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. Are you kidding me? But go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I, I like more grave miscellany. I think that it, no. it, I think it deserves embrace. Is what I'm yeah. saying. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, yes. I loved some of their uh, their uh, variants on uh, tieflings. But yes, that, that, is, that is definitely a high watermark in the whole thing. Yeah. But also, uh, dragon forged are so rad. Uh, <laughs> They're, they're crazy and they're over the top, but they are so rad. Yeah. But we're also not reviewing that product right now. <laughs> so. uh, oh, right. You know, <laughs> fine. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think it is telling that I want to do that. Do the everybody gets a free feat because. Right. But it fixes a lot. I like the idea. Yeah. I mean, there's so much of this setting where I kept thinking, well, that's great. If I play a variant human, I can start with this thing. It says this culture should have, mm. but I'm, I mean, we shouldn't be doing it that way. So yeah. Um, yeah. So here's, here's one of my, my next questions then, um, bringing some of my, my baggage, my Eberron baggage uh, into this conversation. Um, one of the things that Keith Baker did in the original Eberron in order to embrace all that was D&D was he integrated psionics intrinsically into parts of the setting. And now we have this book and some of the ways that he did that uh, you know, with some of the monsters and some of the races that appear in this book, uh, is here, but they still don't have any psionics in the game. Was that okay, or was it a mistake to not have a fully baked version of psionics before they released this book? I I think that they're making the fundamental decision that while uh, psionics fits into Eberron, uh, you can run 
a a good enough version of Eberron without a you know a Scion or Mystic you know PC class. So just run with it. Like that, that's like saying, uh, well, can you really release uh, you know core baseline D and D without a Scionics class because there's mind flayers? Uh, well, no. In my mind, it's more like asking. Can you release uh, a Dragonlands campaign setting because we don't have stats for dragons? I mean, I, I think psionics, I guess, psionics, I guess, aren't as aren't aren't as iconic to Eberron as dragons are to Dragonlands. But it's 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 a it's a key baked in feature of the setting that that now isn't. Uh, sure, sure, I, I agree with that. Just. Um, so Put, the, putting two core classes and a whole system in this book would have said it's already quite substantial page count into the stratosphere mm-hmm. and also oh, made no. sure it never came out. No, no, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. But, but they're clearly still developing things with Psionics. They just put out what new uh, Unearthed Arcana uh, playtest options for Psionics, what, a week or two ago? So they're clearly, yeah. clearly still working on it. They want to do something with it. Part of me wonders if it, it wouldn't have been smart to have it have that out somewhere else prior to well putting so, it on. So, in fairness, Jeff, they've been working on a Mystic or Scion class since 2015. Yes, they like, have. They they knew this was coming, and it just didn't get to completion in time to be anywhere near the book. Right, like, and and, and just, it, it just didn't. I mean, from from a standpoint of uh, looking at the Unarched Arcana with the sort of psionic-themed uh, subclasses that they've released, um, it certainly feels more like they're leaning towards let's not make psionics a separate thing. In it, which case, you could just add it in and it works. Right. It, it just becomes another form of magic. Here, have these extra classes. Use them in your Eberron game. And, you know, when you run your Sarlona game... That the psionics wizard is, uh, you know, one a member of the secret police. Yeah, maybe, uh, but of course they don't know because it's all still in playtesting. So maybe they do end up making it a separate thing. They said that they're still open to doing a mystic uh, or psion class and, and doing it that way. So who knows? Uh, and honestly, every time I've ever interacted with or run Eberron, the psionics piece has always been like an option that nobody took anyway. So it's never been a part of the world that I've explored much regardless. It's probably not going to change my experience with the game. So, so I'm glad you, you talked yourself around to agreeing with what I was saying. That's very good Oh, no. I never disagreed with you. <laughs> I just wanted to ask the question because it was important to some people. And I know, I know it's important to some people. Uh, so. I, I know that there are at least some of our of mine and, and Brandis's friends who are troubled by the fact that you can play a Kalistar but not a Soul Knife. And the fact that the right. the unearthed Arcana version of the Soul Knife does not play well with the Kalistar uh, bonuses. Right, that's accurate. Yeah, we have friends who are very passionate about this particular no. thing, and I have heard from them. This is this is what I'm saying is that yeah, is that for yeah. some people who have who have really delved into the psionic elements of Eberron, there's issues here. Um, hey, hey McCoy, nerds are passionate about a topic. News at eleven. I I <laughs> I am shocked shocked to find gambling in this establishment. You're right. winning, sir. 
<laughs> so here, here's my other question um, that, of things that sort of stood out to me. And we never really went through the book bit by bit. And I think that's okay. We've talked about some of the sections that were there. And, and I think we've referenced enough that people kind of know what's there. And maybe we'll have to go back and do another uh, deep dive class uh, episode just on the Artificer because it's the first time we've had a whole cloth new class in a while. Yeah. Um, what's that? You want to do another history of the class uh, episode? We, we cool. might have to do that sometime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but here's but here's my here's my question. As I think back to the earlier days of Eberron, um, I remember one of the tropes of Eberron being um, that it was being sold as this is not the Forgotten Realms because the NPCs running around in the world aren't superheroes, uh, and right. the most powerful pe- beings, creatures, whatever in the world are always going to be the PCs. Sort and then of. I get. Uh, whoa, okay, whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa. okay. Explain. Hold on, hold on. That was always the impression I was given. Go ahead. The most powerful, uh, goodly or protagonistic creatures, other than the Coatles and the Silver Flame itself, right? Okay. Uh, who are not interventionist and are going to leave you to your own devices. Yeah, but it, most powerful being? Oh no. Yeah, the, no. the, the subtle- other than you know Vol or whatever, but. The subtle distinction between what you were saying and what was presented is it's not that they're the most powerful. It is that they are the protagonists of this story. There aren't other protagonists in the next valley over these, you know, it's not a world where adventuring is a, is an accepted sort of, there are always more adventurers in the next village over is pretty much the accepted standard for Greyhawk, Forgotten mm. Realms, Mythstar, all of the classic settings. In this so, one, the players are the protagonists. That, that gives a... It, it, that, that is still a, a, a harsh formulation for me to agree to, because you get to the, uh, the, the Clifftop Adventurer's Guild kind of business, and it's an Adventurer's Guild in Sharn. It is right. Like, and and, and there, I mean, there are other people in it than your characters. There's a lot of other people that are going out and hunting relics and and all those kinds of things, right? I mean, whether goodly or or evil organizations, there's a lot of that. Is one yeah. way maybe to put it that their storylines aren't supposed to cross your storyline? Uh, more to the point that um, when when you're uh, telling the the story, uh, there is no drist that you like will run into who, who, who may have saved the day several times over. And you just happen to be, uh, you know, living in his world. Uh, right. The, absolutely. Yeah. The adventurers that you run into, they're out there. I mean, there are mercenaries. There are, there are bad guy groups out there, but they are not, uh, the protagonist in, in this world. There aren't a bunch of separate narratives where everybody is like, they're, 10,000 uh, protagonists and there are a few really big protagonists that you are sort of existing in their story. You're the story. Right. And that's what I mean by the storylines don't cross is like, th- this story is about you, but there might be someone going out to find the arc that maybe that just happens to not be your story this time. Sure. But, but I, w- I would argue that's not any different. I mean, if, if you're playing a Forgotten Realms game and Drist is the protagonist of your campaign, then you're a crappy DM. 
That's fair. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that there's much difference here. But there have yeah. been adventures where you're, even written adventures in 5th edition, where you were trying to get something going forward when you were lower level for other people to really actually really win the day. We're going to have to have a hard talk about the uh, Shatterdale, Tentris, and Waterdeep modules at some point. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I can dig into those, yeah. It, but that's a whole other... That's it, second edition. It, We're it, really not reviewing that. They, they are not cute. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, no, not. but I mean, the expectation is, you know, Driss shows up on camera. You have an understanding that this guy is the one of the big heroes of the Forgotten Realms. You run into another char- uh, character in Eberron. They may be interesting people, but the one that's actually going to save the world or save the day eventually is you. Um, well, if if only because there's no canon novels. Right, and well, partly because there's no canon novels, and partly because that they they're trying. They don't always succeed, but they try and frame the adventures so that the the protagonists of the the players feel like they are. It's like playing the 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 Bioware games where your heroes are the heroes. Everybody in the end ends up looking up to them. There's a certain amount of that to. Uh, to the framing of, of Eberron adventures classically. Uh, I say you're talking about Eberron adventures that don't exist in this edition. Right. But the, that is <laughs> so. the DM advice that was given in the, the first place. And it is the framing that they, they try and set up. Right. The tone. So I guess the, the larger point of my question was, and, and we can debate this point all day long, because I would argue that's literally not any different than any advice I would give for every setting in the world. But I get that Eberron has this baggage with it that makes people believe it's special. That's fine. We'll give you a gold star. <laughs> um, I guess the, the, the question I had was, when I go through the monster section of this book, it feels like some of the entities have had a power boost compared to when I looked at, you know, when I looked at the Lord of Blades in what, third edition, he was mid-teens-ish in, in level, whereas he's in the 20s or something now. Like, I feel like the NPCs have gotten more powerful. Well, Is so... That, so am, I, am I crazy? So that actually depends on what you think CR means yeah. and how each edition engages with CR. If the Lord of Blades is by himself or with a very small number of uh, you know, backup singers... Um, PCs punch way above their weight in fifth, where they didn't in third. It's, it's true. They uh, uh, like like uh, a CR four above you in third ed, uh, was uh, like kicking your teeth in. Uh, to say nothing of fourth ed in in fifth, like uh, if it's a solo or not very many backup singers, um, a CR six above you, it's cool. We can probably do this. Um, I like how you envision the Lord of Blades as being the head of a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, it's, it's, dude, it's a metal band. Yeah, of course oh. it is. Of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he he is uh, he is uh, CR eighteen. Right. Uh, is he eighteen? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He's only CR eighteen. Which for a third level character, yeah, that's what do you mean only? But for a thirteenth level character, a parody of thirteenth level characters jumping a CR eighteen. It's, it's very, it's very doable. That's a very <laughs> yeah. doable fight. You, you it might be a hard fight. Yeah. But, sure, yeah. and it should be a hard fight. He's he's supposed to be significant in setting. Yeah. Um, 
it's just like it's the whole meaning of CR relative to character level has shifted around. But you've also got things like the overlords, which have to fit under CR 30 in uh, fifth ed, where in I had someone mention to me that in third, their CRs were clocked in the 40s to 60s. Like, yeah. So, so they're they're moving in the other direction just because there isn't epic level play in in anything like the same way in in fifth. Yeah, I mean the the overlords are on par with Tarasks uh, as far as right. how difficult they are. Uh, I think they under underdo the hit points like they have traditionally done in pretty much every fifth edition monster stat. But yep. Um, but yeah, I mean. Damage immunities, poison, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing from non-magical attacks, damage resistance to cold fire and lightning, uh, conditioned immunities to be charmed, exhaustion, frightened, paralyzed, poisoned, stunned. They have true sight, uh, telepathy. Uh, and you haven't even gotten into the actual abilities yet of the Yeah, of yeah the like <laughs> innate spell casting, legendary resistances, three of them a day, whirlwind of weapons. Which does forty six four damage to anybody within? So here's, two, yeah, it's here's, an aura. Here's my here's my question. Uh, without going through an entire stat block, um, here's my question that comes from the chat. Um, tell me about the most powerful druid in Eberron, who is apparently a tree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, of of super powerful superhero good characters, um, I'm I, I'm being told by by David and Greg that there is a treant druid who is the most powerful druid in, in the world. Is that a thing? I don't remember that. Yes, um, the the uh, the tall forest, if I remember correctly, uh, it's in the the Eldine reaches. Uh, there is a druid there. That is a a, 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 a treant, basically, and yes, it's super powerful. It's also so this is the ex- this is the exception to the nobody else is going to save the day rule. No, well, he's, <laughs> you're not saving the day without leaving the Eldian reaches. Yeah, not even as a super powerful druid. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> saving the next county over is still pretty much out of the reach like, of of druids. Yeah. Right? If only there was some way that we could attack some treants without getting anywhere near them. Hey, how about we start a forest fire? Well, only okay, you sure. can stop. <laughs> we, we, we can go off on that, too, but, but that's okay. Yeah, um, I mean, that, because we, that, that's what, like, there are, that's why I objected when you said yours is the most powerful character. You're not the most powerful characters. But most of the p- powerful characters that are out there are either A, not involved, or B, bad guys. Okay. So uh, I'm going to jump to last thoughts because we're, we've been over an hour here. Uh, so who has last thoughts on, um, on this book, Eberron Rising from the Last War? So I guess my last thought is just to try to recapitulate my – uh, my take on the book, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that um, I I no longer ha- know whether it's a good intro to Eberron book. I just don't have perspective. If you don't need a first time intro to Eberron, then I think it is doing a better job of getting you uh, up and running with a party that has a reason to work together 
and a party that is about something and has social connections and getting you engaged with adventures that actually touch on setting lore and use existing groups. Uh, I think he's doing a better job of that than any other setting book I can think of ever having read. Uh, I think it is, I think chapter four is just absurdly strong for, uh, being a massive collection of adventure hooks that range from the range from very light touch adventure hooks to much more involved ones uh, Mm -hmm. for all these different power groups and all these different scales of play. And I think that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I I really like that chapter as well. I think there's a lot of potential in there. Uh, part of me was tempted at one time when I started my current campaign of running Dragon Heist Waterdeep in Eberron, and I think something like that would have made a great way to develop you know new or uniquely Eberronish sort of faction quests and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, would have worked really well for that. Um, I I have some particular quibbles with the uh, character creation mechanics. Just bits and pieces here and there in chapter one. Um, I, I don't think they, you know, sink the book by any stretch of the imagination. I, I don't think they're a, a significant knock on the book really at all. Um, I, I'm just someone who quibbles about, you know, individual mechanics. So <laughs> I am, but uh, really once we're like, most of chapter one is very good. Once we're out of chapter one, we are off to the races and, the book is just ridiculously good for me. Um, my my, I think literally my only problem in um, chapters uh, two through four is that I don't like Wayne Reynolds' art. There, I said it. And and you also don't like the dragon marks and what they how they change uh, those. That's that's in chapter one. Oh, that's in chapter one. Okay, yeah. uh, that's a distinction I'm drawing. Like I see. And yeah. on to the subject of Wayne Reynolds' art, you are, in fact, allowed to be wrong. <laughs> I, I'll let you know if that's salient to the case. Um, I like to echo that, particularly in this book and where it's trying to go, I felt Wayne Reynolds' art didn't fit as well, but I felt like yeah. overall. So first, I want to say... I know I sound like I, I was very... I was critical before, but not in because saying I didn't like it, just more... These were the things that stuck out to me as I was reading it. I think it gives an excellent toolbox, as Brandis was saying, for and the rest of you were saying, in terms of building a campaign. I just wanted to help point out that if someone was thinking that they'd be able to pick up the book, didn't have a lot of time, and maybe didn't have a lot of uh, lore, that they'd, they would need to make some time, maybe, potentially, before they ran a campaign. Yeah, and I and I think I'm in a similar boat. Wherein I I actually really like this book. I really like the way it's in here. It it inspires me to run an Eberron game uh, as much, if not more, than any other incarnation of Eberron ever has. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that if there are things that could be problematic for people, that we talk about those. And so yeah. that's why I tried to bring those things up. I do like uh, Jeremiah's idea of fixing dragon marks by throwing everybody a feat. I don't know if that's the fix I would go with or if, since I have access to it, I would just say we're just going to use the Wayfinder's Guide version of uh, dragon marks. Um, I have the luxury of owning both products so I can sort of swap in what I want and, and handle it that way. Yeah, make sure you... Uh you know, download and save your uh, existing version of Wayfinders. I seem to recall that they're going to be uh, integrating this set of mechanics into Wayfinders, but that could be wrong. Okay. I don't know. 
uh, they are updating uh, D&D Beyond to match this version. To match this and not Wayfinders. Right. Okay. Uh, Can I just I, real, real quick finish the thing about the art, though? Oh, yeah. Uh, I love the... I did really enjoy, actually, the newspaper things. And I wish they had made more of the art look newspapery, and I wish they made a newspaper generator. Oh, uh, that's oh, a really that's good, cool. really good yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I on the art point uh, specifically, I called this out on Twitter. I'll bring it up again uh, on page twenty-three in this book, uh, where in the section dealing with gnomes, the illustration that they have of a Zill gnome uh, features a character who is an amputee and it is not an excuse to give this character a superpower it is presenting somebody with a real world disability and not wiping it away with magic this is something people deal with and still can be heroic and I kind of love that yeah absolutely I yep. agree um, yeah I noticed that one too uh, that said uh, I'm, I'm fond of the artwork I have a a a a a, a uh, an attachment to Wayne Reynolds art because he established the look and feel of Eberron in the first place. All of the work that's in here is reprints of his previous work. Um, so I, I, I well disposed to liking it cause I liked it in the first place. It, it does it's a little bit like, it's a little bit, not to the same degree, but it's a little bit like uh, Tony D Terlizzi and Planescape. Like that art is uh, or, style or, is so iconic to what that setting is. Or, or but, but and, is and dark sun. Yeah, sure, but but Dietrich is perfect, uh, as is Brom. So there's that. <laughs> I, it, but it, like, yeah. it, like, like it's it's fine. Um, like Wayne Reynolds has just never like worked for me as a thing. That's just it's me. Yeah, and and that's fine. Everybody's got their own tastes, uh, and I always do the "you're allowed to be wrong" joke because it it's it, it it's always funny to me when people get worked up about aesthetic things. Funny story, McCoy. We have met. Yeah, I know. But some of the people listening might not realize that that's what I was doing. Right. And of course, saying that, it also opens up the door to the fact that you could also be wrong. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> it, it rarely happens, but I acknowledge that it's possible. <laughs> um, but no, as far as my, my actual thoughts in the book, um, you know, being the Ebron nerd that I am, uh, I liked it. Uh, I think some of the explanations of some of the setting casseeds are better explained here than any of the original, uh, Eberron books. Um, I think that the whole group patrons mechanics is excellent. Uh, use that like mm -hmm. seriously, <laughs> seriously, this is the, uh, uh, the, the thing that, uh, you could lift out and just put into any game, really, have a group. We talked about it with Acquisitions, Inc. Having a group, a mechanic for structuring groups that players participate in is a good thing. It gives them a reason to do things, a reason to be together, a reason. Group patrons is one of the best things out of this book. Well, uh, it also gives them a reason to not just completely go berserk with a power fantasy. Sure, right? it, because it gives them something right. to lose. 
It, 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 but I also I also like that that it's not essential. It's almost presented as a here's a suggestion and a whole bunch of pages to support that suggestion. And yeah. if that's not the style of game that you want to run or the campaign the, or the story that you want to tell, then then it's okay. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, it, it it's sort of the anti murder hobo. Exactly. You know, it's it you if you're trying to get in good with the Dragon Mark House, going around and randomly stealing stuff and bringing a bad name on the Dragon Mark House is maybe not going to work out well for you. Um, things like that uh, it gives consequences for actions, but it also gives you benefits for following a, a theme. Um, I love the uh, I I I I. I I agree with some of the complaints about the dragon marks. Um, it's not a, a, a showstopper, um, but yeah, I agree with them. I like uh, the, I, I really want to spend time talking about the artificer. So if you guys want to do a, a, a thing on artificers, I I'm here for it. Cause I have thought, yeah, we, so we didn't talk about the artificer at all, and it's it's the first time we've ever had a, a whole cloth new class added to fifth edition D anD D. So it's probably worth having a conversation about at some point. Yeah, in yeah. More depth. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot to go here. Uh, I can go on about the setting forever. If you want me to talk right. for days and days, I will talk about Eberron and nice little things that I love and big broad things that I love. And this book, but we're not here to that. we're not here to talk about the setting. We're here to talk about this book, right? <laughs> this what I was what I mean is this book does a good job of covering a lot of those things and explaining why they're they're cool. It sort of gives a a, a place where you can build from rather than here's raw information that you have to figure out how to use here's here here's information presented in a method to hopefully help you use it i don't know that's that's my final thoughts i i apologize i ran bull <laughs> i mean if we if we weren't into rambling about D D, then we wouldn't all have volunteered to be here tonight right that's so true so. <laughs> we would have never started podcasting y'all that's true. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So I think we're going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode now that we're well over an hour. We'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners, especially those of you who support us by shopping at Amazon or DMs Guild through the links at thetomeshow.com or who become patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. We also would like to thank our guests, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, where can folks find you? Uh, I have JeremiahMcCoy.com. Uh, I'm Tech Noir on Twitter. I'm a regular cast member on the Saturday morning D&D show over at Variant Rolls. And uh, I, I will have a new episode soon of uh, Monster Psychologist on this feed. Yay! Nice. <laughs> and Brandis, where can folks find you? I write my own blog at brandistoddard.com I am on Twitter at brandistoddard I write for tribality.com and I have a Patreon that uh, supports my uh, blog writing habits uh, that is brandistoddard uh, If you want to get a hold of the show you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com You can find me on Twitter I'm at Squatch S-Q-U-A-C-H You can find Tracy She is at Sarah Darkmagic the show is at The Tome Show. You can also find that we are, generally speaking, for the most part, streaming our recordings at twitch.tv slash tomeshow. 
uh, and they will show up on the Tome Show's uh, YouTube channel um, afterwards, although, um, you know, usually a, a day or two afterwards. This episode may not, because it seems like that the stream had some weird echoey things going on, and I don't want to drive people on YouTube crazy with weird echoey things that would then sit there for eternity and people could judge us by. So, <laughs> so uh, this one may not end up there, but you'll always have the audio. And that's episode 332, where we pulled the heist on an airship that was piloted by the long-lost heir of a dragon-marked house. We happened to record it, but we think we're going to delete the evidence in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.